Uh, hi, Amber. You've been waiting patiently there. I think you have a question for Tom. Yes, I do. Hi, Tom. Hello, Amber. I wanted to say, Nicholas, I experienced the same thing with the um, the eyesight thing at a stressful time. I was getting my master's degree, and I was just going and going and staring at the computer a lot. And I didn't like what I was doing to boot, and it, half of my vision kind of went away. I had to get someone to come pick me up and everything, and it was scary, but it was definitely stress. Um, Tom, my question is about masculinity and, and feminine. And you talk about the intellect and the being level working together to optimize growth. And I was wondering if you could talk about the essence of masculine and femininity and how they work together in optimization and what that might look like in um, like the family dynamic, the workplace, our government, and in our society when it's healthy. Because we see a lot of dissonance going on. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about what it looks like when it's healthy. Well, that's a question that would take me at least four or five hours to answer. <laughs> that's a very big, very big question. Uh, although I am writing a book pretty much on that subject. And I've got, um, oh, a very bare skeleton kind of sketchy outline of it on my website. If you go to my website, MBT. Uh, dot, you know, www.mybigtoe.com and look for downloads. I think there's a tab that says downloads. And inside that, you'll see things that are, um, uh, well, you'll see gems and you'll see a couple other things. But you get down, you'll see the book, Primal Male, Primal Female. And there's about 20 pages there that outline what male and female is at the very basic fundamentals. Take away the cultural overlays and just, you know, what is what does gender mean? And it's, it's not much. It's maybe a 5%, you know, of the concepts that are going to be in this book I'm going to write. And uh, I've been writing this now for a decade or two. But that's just a, a, what do you call it in a movie? A trailer? You know, it just gives you a little glimpse inside of, of what it's maybe about. So that's kind of a trailer, if you will. But it gives you some of the logic of what you're asking about. And uh it's 20 pages, and I obviously can't do 20 pages here uh, to answer your question. But I can say, when you say, let's, you know, what does it look like when it's healthy? When it's healthy, when we do not have, you know, fear and ego dominating our relationships, the male and female connection or relationship is great. It's fantastic. They work with each other perfectly. They're, they are designed to work together as a, as a team, a part of one whole thing. And the male-female dynamic, when it's not neurotic, is a very powerful and very um, loving, caring, beautiful thing. So, yes, there is a healthy relationship <laughs> between the genders. It isn't really, you know, gender war it's it's gender love and gender peace if you don't have if the two people involved do not have all the fear ego and beliefs that's what makes it not work well so it's a matter of growing up so you can enhance your ability to be part of that relationship just by growing yourself up 
that's again comes back to that's always the main thing that you should do right no matter what you grow yourself up so that that helps a lot but the the two work very well together they're not naturally competitive they're naturally helpful to each other they naturally fit together like i say as a as a team as a, it's almost like a you know two parts of a whole thing when they fit together it's very very good and i have some exercises and i talk about some of those in this little in this paper i wrote that uh, be a good way to kind of work on attaining that if you're in a relationship with somebody and i say well here's what the guy should do and here's what the girl can do and they can kind of work this out and see how that works for them so if you go look at that you'll find a little um some some exercises if you will some ways ways to be to to help develop that that uh in your relationship but the problems that we have now is that our concepts our understanding of gender is probably more dysfunctional than it's ever been our understanding of gender has has gotten so far away from what's natural and fundamental that we don't know what it means most men and women don't really know what it means to be a man or be a woman it's we've kind of lost touch with what is that you know what does that mean what's the what's the essence of being female what's the essence of being male and we are kind of lost you go back a thousand years and basically the males and females knew exactly you know what that meant but not so much today we have uh, our intellects have so gotten in charge of trying to define gender and relationship that we've worked ourselves into gender war more than uh, we have into anything else we've worked ourselves into competition uh, between male and female and none of that is particularly natural now we do have to make some fundamental changes in our culture to allow females to be female and men to be men we now have a a very um skewed idea of that so when women go into the workplace they're expected to act like men it was a it was a male workplace before that now there's a lot of females in the workplace but they all are supposed to act like men they need to fill the roles just like the men filled them when they were in that workplace so we don't value at the workplace we don't value the feminine side of things we don't value the the contribution that females bring we just look at the at the contribution we expected before and we want to just keep that the same so there's a whole thing missing there and vice versa when it comes to um you know males and what's expected of them it's very different now and it's in transition you see for almost all of the history of the humans what I guess if you're really looking at very distinct humans it's 2 or 300,000 years. If you're looking at at the even human ancestors it maybe goes back a million or so years. But for the times that humans have been walking around the environment has been a very violent unfriendly space. 
been an extremely tough place. We have grown up. We've gotten kinder and gentler in time. We are actually succeeding in growing the quality of our consciousness. But we're to a point now where we don't have nearly as strict a division of labor and division of, of process that we had in our past. So we have to change our attitudes. Our social understanding of gender needs to change. And change is always tumultuous. Change always has a lot of things going on in it that are dysfunctional. Um, you know, when we changed from the Argarian uh, Revolution, where we became farmers, to the Industrial Revolution, where we became industrialists, there was a lot of dysfunction that happened throughout that change. A lot of difficulty of people trying to adapt to a new way of being. Well, it's like that in a more subtle and a more fundamental way with gender. Our, we have succeeded in being kinder and gentler to each other. It's not a scary place as it used to be. Uh, we, our species is not in danger of becoming extinct. Our population isn't small. And all of those things have created a new space for us to interact in. And we are in the change. We're in the process of changing something that has been at our core for you know, 200,000 years. And now in the last, what, uh, two centuries, three centuries, we've gone through maybe more than that, maybe four centuries, we've, we've been going through this changing in the way that we interact with each other between male and female. And that just has to take some time before it works itself out. So that's kind of a, you know, I'm giving you a very broad kind of short answer uh, that there is a lot to talk about there. And it is a, you know, it is a, a long story, but read that little 20 page thing I have. That'll get you kind of focused on some of the basic logic. And uh, other than that, as far as your own personal life goes, just grow yourself up. Have relationships, enjoy relationships, don't be judgmental, ask what you can give, not what you can get. It's all about love is a, is a thing, it only takes one to love. Okay? Love is given away, it's given away at no, at no cost. When you love, it's something you give. If it's not love, then it generally doesn't work real well in the long term. If it's a deal... Well, I'll do this for you if you do that for me. If it's a negotiation, that's not love. All love is unconditional. If it's conditional, it's not love. It's, a, it's an arrangement. And arrangements work for a while, but they tend to grow old and not really work well anymore. You know, arrangements aren't always long-lived. So... Yeah, there's a lot to change here, a lot for us to, to uh, grow up. This is an area that is very significant in that it contributes probably more or at least as much to the dysfunction, to our fear and to our angst, to our ego than any other area in our life. And it uh, is a very important thing to consider. That's why I've been writing this book for a long time, because I think it's something that is really ready, something we need, that we're ready, we're getting ready for. I'm not sure we're ready for it just yet, which is part of the reason I guess I've been dragging my feet with it. I'm not sure that the times 
quite ready yet. The people are willing to can see outside of the box that they have them trapped in, the gender box they've, they've trapped themselves in. So I don't know if that helps or not, but uh, there's a lot to there's a lot to talk about there and a lot to think about. That's a very big a very big question. But you see, love. You know, there's another question. I was looking through some of the questions, and one of them was asking about the uh, you know an open relationship. And love is always open. It's unconditional. You see, love is something given. It's not a deal. Deal is something else doesn't mean that deals are bad. I mean, we make business deals, and I guess we make relationship deals. Business deals work some of the time. Usually they have dates on them. They run out. You know, after a certain time, the deal's over. Uh, they understand that deals don't go on forever, and they typically renegotiate after a certain period. Uh, you know, contract's over. Uh, contracts all have an ending. But in any case, in a relationship, you know, deals work some, but it's not long-term. They they don't really have good long-term outcomes. So if it's love, it's unconditional. doesn't matter. It's not, if you do this, I'll love you, and if you don't do that, I won't. Love is given away, and it's never taken back. But there's sometimes there's people you just can't live with. Now, like has to be earned. Trust has to be earned. Somebody has to earn your trust by being trustworthy in their interactions with you. They have to earn your like by being likable when they interact with you. But there are people that you can love and you don't like them and you don't trust them, either one, but you still love them. That's the nature of love. Well, thank you, Tom. There, that was a lot. There was a lot there, and I think when you first put out that um, little write-up that you did about mm -hmm. your book, I did approach it, and um, I couldn't wait to get to the part where you were going to say all the things that you had to say. I knew you were going there, but with the programs, being a female in a, a male-dominated society, to hear the programs that I kind of encounter those hardwired programs about what um, a woman is to to be reading that and it's it's painful sometimes to slam up against that I guess in society and I thought well I'll read this later and I did I did skim over it and I have I've probably watched all of your videos I first came across your work in um 2010 um more recently there's been a influx of videos so I have some catching up to do but um <laughs> I see that with someone, the last chat, someone had asked a question about, you know, what's going on with what was going on in Hollywood. And you sort of recoiled at that because, I mean, it's Hollywood and that's a stretch of anyone's imagination to imagine Tom Campbell really involved in caring about what's going on in Hollywood. But um, there's just all these sexual harassment and uh, sexual assault things just popping up everywhere. And that is one of the things that sparked you know, my question, because it is a result of people looking at each other through the lens of those programs, causing all this dissonance. Mm -hmm. And as the world begins to change, I just wonder what it what it might look like in the workplace and particularly in the government, um, because I don't the solution, of course, isn't to separate or to, um, you know, not work together. 
it, we have to work together. So I, I don't know exactly what it would look like, but it, it's, it's interesting to think about. So I appreciate your yeah. answer very much. <laughs> well, to say a little more then uh, to you about that, in the workplace today, like I say, we, we expect the females in the workplace, at least the workplace I'm used to, you know, I'm, I'm worse. I'm used to a, a technical workplace for the most part. That's where I don't work in a bank. I work in, you know, physics and, and engineering and that sort of thing. And in the workplace, we tend to expect females to act like men. We even uh, like it better if they look like men, you know, they put their hair up, they wear suits, uh, you know, they uh, tend to not, they tend to de-emphasize their femininity to get along in the, in the workplace. You see, that's not the way it needs to be. The feminine needs to be valuable in the workplace because the, you know, the feminine viewpoint is just a very different viewpoint. The way females process data, the results they come to, the things they take into account, the way they look at the world, what's important to them, all of that is very different than the male viewpoint. And both viewpoints are useful. Both viewpoints have value. Both viewpoints are, are uh, you know, work together to, again, to, to uh, make a better, a better product, a better uh, whatever it is in your business world you do, whether you make products or services or whatever. It's better if you can take both of those viewpoints and work with them together as opposed to have it all unidimensional, all have one viewpoint or the other. Again, it gets back to diversity. Diversity is a good thing to have, a, a, to have everybody in your office have the same viewpoint means that you'll never be very creative. You'll never come up with, uh, you know, with uh, uh, a lot of solutions that you could otherwise. There's a lot of things that you just won't see because everybody has the same viewpoint. That's not good as far as innovation, creativity, or even just doing a good job. So the fact that the male and females live in different worlds, see the world differently, process data differently, gives the combination of both an advantage. But see, we're not taking advantage of that. We, we bring the females into the workplace and want them to pretend that they're men. And that is losing the feminine input that they could have in that workplace. And yes, even in a technical workplace, that's true. You know, even when the workplace is full of engineers, that's true. There's a feminine viewpoint to that engineering as well and to the problem because engineering solutions are solutions for people. There's people connection things. How is this going to affect, you know, how is this engineering result going to affect families? How is it going to affect children? How is it going to affect you know, the users and who are the users and how do they feel about things? And to have a female's perspective on that, you'll make a better product. So we don't appreciate that. But like I said in the beginning, we're in a time of change where the gender roles are modifying away from what they have been through all of our existence as a species like the 99% of our existence of a species, it's been one way and now it's different. And we've got all of these instincts that are from that, you know, the last 200,000 years worth of instincts in both of us, males and females. And now our environment's changed. 
So we have to, one, accept those instincts and not try to not try to deny them, because when you deny something that's fundamental to you, that's instinctual, you'll just make yourself neurotic. You need to work with those instincts, and you need to to work with them and adapt them, adapt them to the new environment. And eventually, those instincts will change. But instincts don't change on a dime. You know, it takes a while. So this transition is going to take a little while. But instincts don't have to take 100,000 years to change either. Instincts can change in probably, you know, as little as, what, uh, four or five generations. We can change instincts. But we have to, you know, it's just, if we actually knew what we were doing and made a concerted effort to do it, we could change instincts rather quickly. But we just kind of you know wander around haphazardly, clueless as to what we're doing and why we're doing it. That's why it takes so long for instincts to change, because we can't, we don't focus on it, we don't have our intent on it. So yes, the workplace would be very different. Females would be valued by the viewpoint that they bring to the problem, whether they're female engineers or or nurses, it doesn't matter. It's the viewpoint they bring to the problem is different than the male viewpoint. And together, they'll always produce something that's better than they will if they're all, you know, if everybody thinks like a nurse or everybody, you know, like a female nurse or everybody thinks like a male engineer, that makes the nursing and the engineering poorer for both of those. It's uh, a time of change. Time of change is always full of pain and agony because change is difficult. We are one way and we need to be a different way. And that's a struggle. And most of us struggle against change. So if we're in a situation and it doesn't feel right to us, well, we push back. You know, we don't like change that's, that, uh, you know, wants us to act differently. That's kind of the ego's viewpoint. No, it's me. What about me? I want it this way. This is the way it needs to be. You need to change to suit me. So that's a that's an ego talking, and that's why it takes so long for us to to get through the change because we have all this ego and fear. So get rid of your ego and fear. Stay skeptical. Try to enjoy life as much as you can, and realize that a lot of this is just the way it is. It's just instincts that are trying to evolve now in a different environment than we've had before. And that that process takes time. And it isn't that it's mean-spirited. It's just that it's the way it is. And it's going to take a little time for us to change. So don't feel that people who don't get it are really mean-spirited and are, you know, are kind of negative people. They're just struggling with things themselves. And they have their own ego and their own fear that they're trying to deal with. And it's a slow process to go through fundamental change and this change is about as fundamental as it gets thank you tom (laughs) uh tom the the open relationship question you referred to there was uh was one of tt's but i believe you answered that i want to ask you a question from the mbt forum user nessie on your pmr travels um Throughout your PMR travels, Tom, what have you encountered that has gladdened your heart? Do you have any particular joys in this life packet? And has anything really surprised you? I like that question. That's a good one. 
That's a hard one to answer, though. Um, well, I could say that there was a lot that surprised me. There was a whole lot of things that I didn't understand, and and it was always a surprise to realize, oh, that's the way it works. I didn't understand that. I didn't realize that. So I had many surprises, lots of aha moments in my in my travels. Um, I've had very few that were negative, more negative ones in the beginning, probably because in the beginning I was more negative, but uh, very few, uh, the negative stuff got fewer and fewer in between. And I find my life here to be mainly, you know, very positive, full of joy, full of happiness, you know, everything's great. Uh, I... uh, yeah, I, I'm having fun and a good a good time. My life is about as good as I could imagine it being, and I enjoy it. And I don't think it could get much better. But however it goes and whatever it does, I think it will always be good because that's the way I define it as being. Things come in if they if things come that are painful or difficult. Well, that's good because that's a challenge. That's something that uh, you have to make the right choices. That takes maybe a little thought or a little more effort. So whatever happens, it gets defined as good because it's all part of the process of growing up. So even the stuff that's painful, even the stuff that may hurt a while, that's good because there's a good chance that that pain and that hurt has something to do with your fear and ego. So embrace it, learn from it, grow beyond it, and keep going. So the game is really a, a fun game uh, to play. It's it's always interesting and there's lots of change, never gets boring. So my life in all of my realities is pretty much like that. And the rea- when I'm in other reality systems, it's pretty much like that too because they're all the same in the sense that in every reality you have choices to make and then you grow up from the, the feedback you get from those choices, whether they're good choices or not. So it's, uh, I think all of my realities are a lot of fun and mostly joy. And, uh, I do learn, a, I do learn a lot still, you know, as time goes on, I haven't got to the point with, oh, it's all same old, same old, I, you know, I've been there, done that. I haven't learned anything. I'm constantly learning new things. It's just the way life is. You're constantly growing. You just do it at kind of different levels and in different ways. Uh, what about surprise, Tom? There is there is a story you tell of something that you was told when you was a young person. So were you surprised when when Pamela the One turned up in your life when when she did? Well, not surprised, but elated. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I didn't say, "Oh, about time." You know, it takes a while before you uh, you register really what's going on. You know, and and then after the you get the resonance and things work out, and then it all kind of comes back into memory. Oh, right, this must be the one. Then you say about time, but uh, yeah, I've had a lot of surprises. You know, one of the big surprises I had was I'm starting this out. Uh, you know, I shouldn't say I started it out when I was five, six, seven years old, but when I re regained my ability to get around in the non-physical and so on after uh, connecting with Bob Monroe and so on. I'm, I'm starting there as a, 
as a physicist, as a scientist. And in my mind, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist or it's not important. You see, back I was in graduate school before I took the first TM course. So my idea about uh, religion was that it was, you know, for people who, uh, you know, need that sort of thing. It was a kind of emotional crutch. And, you know, I had a very negative attitude toward most most religions and most uh, spiritual things. Thought it was mostly nonsense because just didn't seem to make sense to a left brain physicist. But then the more I learned about life and reality and how things work, I eventually came to the point where I realized that uh, most all of the fundamental things in those religions were all true. And they were all very fundamental ways that the world works. You know, it is all about love and caring and about cooperation. And those are the, those are the key ideas. It's about giving and it uh, that was a big surprise for me after uh, all those years of being the uh, uh, agnostic atheist scientist. I realized that the spiritual side of things was really the important side of things. It was a much more important and fundamental side of things than was the the technical or the physical side of things. So that was a that was a big change going from from uh, kind of one extreme, uh, well, not to the other. I guess I embrace all of it now. I don't, I guess I'm extreme always in all directions, you know, extremely right-brained, extremely left-brained, you know, extremely uh, into the understanding the, the science and the physical world as a physicist and also into the spiritual world. So I may be a, an extremist in all directions at this point, which maybe makes me not an extremist at all. I'm not sure, but Yes, I've had many surprises, things I had to unlearn and things I had to see from a different perspective just because that's what my experience began to tell me. And all of this was done through my own explorations and understanding of what those explorations meant. So I've gone through a whole bunch of aha moments. Matter of fact, I had a talk with Blue Sky Symposium. You can look that up, I think. And it was a uh, an interview where they asked me, what were the main, what, what were your main learning points? What were your aha moments as you've gone through, you know, the last 40 years? And I listed 15 of them, 15 kind of aha moments that I got to that were big realizations. And uh, that's out on a, on a video someplace. You can, you can look that up, but that was one of them. All right, Tom, thank you for sharing that. Uh, we are going to go back to Vanessa now, who is going to expand on what Amber was asking you about. Vanessa. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, well, just looking at relationships um, and how they, they tie into emotions. So I've heard you, Tom, say that uh, sadness is just an aspect of love, right? Sadness can can be doesn't have to be, but it can be an aspect of love. Okay. And usually you get to the sadness where there's people you love, people you care about, and you see that they are hurting themselves. You see that they are dysfunctional, and there isn't anything you can do about it. And that's mm. sad. You see, 
So whether that's, you know, a mother looking at her children or whether that's, you know, a husband looking at his wife or his children or his mother or his father or whatever, you see people, you know, sometimes I've run into people who have parents that fight all the time and you kind of mm. wish you, you see where they are, you know, they would love it if their parents would stop the constant bickering and fighting with each other, but they can't fix it. They can't do anything about it. They just have to accept it. And though they love their parents, that's sad when you love somebody that continues to hurt themselves and be dysfunctional and you just have to watch them doing it and can't do anything about it. So love can have a component of sadness in it. Where if they didn't love them, you might still be a little sad, but it wouldn't be as deep or painful. I see. Okay. So the sadness can be an aspect of love when it's about other, when you have this kind of empathy for other. Mm -hmm. that's, that's when it's sadness. Okay. Because um, I'm trying to understand emotions all the time. And um, if I'm feeling sadness, then, then sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll give it space to be because I feel like it's just an aspect of love. But then if I go into it, I see that the sadness is arising because I just have a limited perspective and I'm only seeing it from my view. Mm -hmm. So then so then what my intent is, is to um, not feel sad and to see a bigger picture perspective of everything, have this bigger understanding. Um, so yes. would you say, yeah, that's a helpful uh, yes, that, that, that is a very helpful way to look at it. And that is the thing that, you know, alleviates that sadness uh, mostly. And that is that you know that people are just who they are. They have to be who they are. They cannot be any different than they are. So here there's a person and that person's dysfunctional. And you have to realize that, well, that's just where they are in their process of learning. They're on a path to grow up and learn. And they're struggling. They're struggling with their fear. They're struggling with their ego. They're struggling with their beliefs. And that's just something they have to get through in order to get out the other side. And it may they may not get out the other side in this lifetime. They may struggle, you know, right up until they die here with those things and never get outside of that. And the next time when they incarnate again, they'll still have to grow up. They'll struggle again. And they may be several lifetimes. They may just struggle on that same issue, but eventually they will grow up and they'll get over it. But you have to let people do that in their own time, in their own way. You can't fix anybody else. All you can mm -hmm. do is give them an environment in which they're more likely to fix themselves. So, yes, that idea when you see people and you see them being dysfunctional and, you know, you just have to let them be and say, well, that's just just the way it is. You know, it's just the way they are. They have to deal with that. I can try to make sure I don't contribute to it by making them more fearful or more upset or, you know, make their ego make them retreat into their ego even further or give them new beliefs to, you know, to mess them up. So you can try not to be part of their problem, but there often isn't anything you can do to fix it. And that's mm -hmm. where empathy comes in. So you have a lot of empathy for the person. So people who, are, who aren't 
nice people, let's say. They do have a lot of anger and whatever. You, you can step back from a bigger picture and have empathy for those people. They're struggling. They're doing the best they can with what they've got to work with. And there's mm-hmm. no way that they can leap out of that, you know, that hole that they have themselves in. They have to climb out on their own. So you make it easy for them. You don't push their buttons on purpose. You know, you don't make fun of them. You maybe you leave them alone and they'll just have to figure it out some way on their own. But you'll have empathy. You'll have compassion for them. You won't feel get away, get away, you awful person. You won't make judgments about them. You know, you're just not nice. You will have empathy. You'll have compassion because you know they're suffering. You know they're unhappy. They're miserable, but they just don't see that they're making themselves miserable. They think everybody else is making them miserable, but that's not the case. They're making themselves miserable, and there's no way you can get that idea in their head. So that is sad, and that should bring out a feeling of compassion instead of a feeling of contempt. If your feeling is contempt, look at that awful jerk, you know, look at those awful people, you know, then you become part of their problem. You help them dig deeper into that hole that they're in. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's the thing. All the best you can do is just be compassionate with people like that. Everybody here is doing the best they can with what they got to work with. And you say, well, why don't they just grow up? Well, that's not easy, not easy to do. And what they have to work with isn't enough to do that quickly. That's just the way it is. Maybe next time or the time after that or the time after that, they'll get it. Right now, they don't seem to be getting it. But if you are nice to them anyway, you you don't push their buttons, you don't judge them, you just have compassion for them and see if you can be part of their solution rather than part of their problem then you're doing as much as you can. But you, you, sometimes you just can't do much. You have to accept it, that that's the way they are. But you see, even that takes a lot of the pressure off. If you accept somebody who's like that, that that's just the way they are, then you don't get caught in their, in their dysfunction, if they make you mm-hmm. angry, you say, oh, that person's like that. That makes me angry. Look at the way they're treating me or somebody else that I care. Uh, now you're, you've been pulled in to their dysfunction, you see, and now you're sharing it. And you're a part of the dysfunction, and you're just being dysfunctional as well. But if you mm-hmm. don't get sucked in to that, you don't judge, you don't get negative, and you just have empathy and compassion for them, then they really uh, – can't upset you even if they're rude to you Mm, right yeah that's kind of where I was going is like say you're in a relationship with somebody and they do things that um that are maybe hurtful like I don't know like they don't respond to you or you know or they they are just kind of disrespectful in a sense then if there's a sad feeling that comes up around that um I think I just guess want to know that I'm going the right direction here is that if a sad feeling comes up around that, it's my intent is like, don't feel sad. You don't need to feel sad because that's their decision to do what they're doing. And it means nothing about me. And it's also, Vanessa, it's also your interpretation of what they're feeling and what they're doing. And your interpretation may not be right. 
Mm-hmm. You see, yeah, you're interp- you're interpreting it as oh, they're being um, what did you say? Uh, yeah. Thoughtless or disrespectful. In their mind, they may not feel that way. They may feel that they've just made a statement about the weather or something, and uh, there's nothing disrespectful about it. And they don't understand that from their from their point of view, there is no disrespect. But from your point of view, there is. That happens a lot. It, mm-hmm. You have to understand. You interpret. So the thing to do instead of feeling hurt by it would be to explore it you know well just exactly you know what's the context of that or how did you mean that or does that mean this or does that mean that and explore it in a non-judgmental non-emotional non-self-centered way that's just a topic to explore and and see what was going on there and you may find that a lot of those times that disrespect really wasn't intended. That was just your interpretation. So that's mm-hmm. another angle from which you, you can work. Right. So just be curious and don't take things personally. Yes. See, as long as you see that everybody's just doing the best they can with what they have to work with, there's no reason to take anything personally. That's mm-hmm. just the way they are. There's nothing personal. Even if they're yeah. angry with you, it's nothing really personal. It's just the way they are. It's their choice to be angry. You see? Yeah. So there is the reason that we're, t- so for me, if I'm taking something personally, is that just because it's my fear? Like my, my fear that's making me see it, make it all about me. And what's that fear? Yeah. Fear of- that's your, e- that's your, that's your ego. How dare you say that to me? Why are you uh-huh. being rude to me? Why are you you know, doing this to me. I What have I done to deserve this kind of whatever? You see, that's your ego. It's about you. What about me? What you're doing to me? I don't like that. So it's a me, me, I, and that's the problem. That is your ego, and that ego is attached to a fear. A fear is that this person isn't the one I thought he was. This person is, uh, you know, is not uh, caring or doesn't really, you know, fit with match you know, what I thought I I had there in that relationship. And you have fears about things not being the way you want them. Well, that's more ego, things being the way you want them. So that's a fear and ego issue. Yeah, you shouldn't take things personally. You have to realize that everybody's different and everybody lives in a different reality. And the reality of the person that you're speaking to is not the same as your reality. So everybody interprets what other people say in terms of their own reality. So you say mm-hmm. something to me, I think, what would I mean if I said that? So I'm interpreting what you say in terms of my own understanding of things, you see? And I may mm-hmm. miss it because you're not me. So the idea, that's how everybody interprets things. If I said, you know, whatever it is that, that sound disrespectful, if I said that, I would be disrespectful. That would be a disrespectful thing. I'd only say that if I was didn't really care that much about somebody or if I didn't really respect them. Otherwise, I wouldn't say that. So to you, it's disrespectful. To that person, not necessarily. You, you judge everybody else by interpreting them as yourself, really. Right. So, and I, I see that you don't do that at all. So is what you're doing, are you connecting with their IOC to see what they actually mean? 
um, when they say something like, like how do you overcome that? Well, sometimes I do. Sometimes if I'm talking with people or even if I'm lecturing and I'm talking to a whole crowd, I'll connect with the individual who asked me a question to try to find out what's the real question, not the one that they're saying. Because a lot of times, particularly if they have to state the question in public, they're not really telling you what the real question is. So I try to understand, you know, what is the real question and what is the issue and how can I best help them deal with that issue or understand that issue. So, And if I'm talking one-to-one to people, um, mostly if it's just conversation, I don't bother with doing any of that. You know, I'm not always looking into people's thoughts and how they feel. But if it's a conversation that is, you know, uh, it requires some understanding from their viewpoint, and I don't feel necessarily confident that I've got that, then yes, I can go see life through their eyes, which basically see it how they are seeing it. And I can't do that perfectly, but I can do that in to some degree of looking at how they see the world, trying to look through their eyes. But it takes a little time, and you have to know somebody a little bit before you really can do that very well. It's hard to do that just with a you know with a person that you've just met. But yes, you, you can get some sense. Would you recommend that for others? Because that sounds like a, an amazing way to communicate with with people is to connect with them and actually see where they're coming from. So is that? Well, yeah. It it just happens. The more you care about other people. The more you have compassion for other people, the more that it's about other people, the more you understand where they're coming from, the more you can see the world through them. So as you grow up and make it not about you, oh, that was an insult to me. You know, that didn't feel good. And that then turns out to be a negative. You know, before that happens, you, if you care about that other person a lot and you have developed your ability to love and give, then you will know. You just know. It's an intuitive thing of where that person's coming from. And you don't really pay attention a whole lot necessarily to the words they say because you're reading mm-hmm. between the words. Right. You're not You're not really, the words aren't the main thing. They'll yeah. say all sorts of things that they really don't mean, but that's okay because you understand what they, what they do mean because you understand them and you can see things through their reality. So it's just not something you have to learn to do. It's something that just becomes a part of you as you grow up. Okay. Okay. Beautiful. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you, Vanessa. You know, you and your group made a very big contribution to the MBT uh, from head to toe event in Vancouver this past summer. Uh, I know Tom enjoyed the format, so we are going to be doing it again in 2019. This time in the United Kingdom, Manchester, England, March 3rd, March 4th. Um, six immersives, uh, MBT immersives planned in 2018, three for Europe, three for USA, all sold out. But more immersives in 2019 on the way. Please email us, Keith at MBT Events, for details. Uh, Tom, you are also going to be going back to Vancouver for Vanessa's group sometime next summer. And there is also a possible science symposium in Poland to fit in. So uh, that's going to be very exciting. And 2018 is going to be a very busy year. Okay, back to the questions. Uh, we're going to go to a slightly darker place for the next couple. Um, Nessie is asking about negative entities. She says, Tom, throughout history, there seems to have been a prevalence of fear attached to the belief that we are imminently vulnerable to attack by negative entities. 
uh, be it devils, demons, witches, the evil eye, or within MBT speak, NPMR negative entities. Could you discuss the likelihood of this type of interaction in terms of ballpark figures or percentages? Thank you. Uh, most of the time, these demons and negative entities that attack people are their own fears. Most of the time, probably, you know, 98% of the time when you're dealing with negative entities, you're really dealing with your own fear that you interpret in terms of something outside of you, because none of us like to think a thought that the negativity is coming from inside of us. So when we run into negative things, we tend to interpret that as something from outside, which makes an attack. And now we're the victim rather than the perpetrator. Whereas if we realize that it's really likely to be our own fear, then we're actually the perpetrator, not the victim. Or I guess we're both. We're the perpetrator and the victim. You know, so it's a it's most of the time that is what it is. It's your own fear that's being dealt with. Now, sometimes if you're within a group, there is such thing as group consciousness. Um, we often call that culture. You know, there's a group consciousness that shares things. And if that group is very fearful, then you can pick that up. So it's not necessarily all just your own fear, but it comes from the fear of the people that are in your group, your associations, your religion, your workspace, your family, you know, whatever you're, you, we're all members of a lot of different groups. You're a member of any group that you, in your mind and you're with your intent, you associate yourself as being part of that group. You make that association, then you kind of plug into the group mind there. So it, the fear can come from that. So that's what we call hysteria sometimes. And, and that, you know, a mob becomes more and more angry than any one of the people in the mob would have been by themselves. They reinforce each other's negativity. That's the group thing. So it can come from that. If you're talking to people and in your culture, there's demons that will you know, do this to you and that. And there's, you know, spirits of the trees and of the frogs and, you know, the sun and the moon and whatever else. And they do this and that. If that's part of your culture, then you will have those experiences because you will create that kind of experience and you will interpret the experiences you have in terms of that kind of, those kind of metaphors. So that's what most of that negativity is. Now, occasionally, the negativity is from somebody who's embodied, somebody who really sending a lot of negative thoughts your way, somebody who uh, has very negative attitudes towards you, or who maybe if they don't have negative attitudes for you, they just want to hurt you. They just want to do something to you. And that person could have a body here just as well. And that is the, the dark side of, let's say, healing. You know, you can heal somebody with your intent. You can modify the future probability that they are healthier. Well, you can also modify the future probability that they have less health or that they have pains or that uh, all the food that they eat tastes bad or any kind of other negative thing. You can impart that kind of energy, and it modifies future probability that that, that that will happen that way. So if there's somebody who has a very negative attitude towards you, that will tend to make you 
feel less happy and free, that'll be a burden for you. So we can also have other IUOCs that are not embodied here, that then you would say these are these are um, non-physical beings, and they can on occasion cause some distress with some people sometimes, and usually there is a good reason for that. There's some connection, and the connection may not be this lifetime. It may be a lifetime before this. There can be those kinds of things, but now we're talking about stuff that's rare. Now we're way off in the margins about things that happen very infrequently. Maybe one in a hundred thousand people or something, you know, real low in the in the percentages that this happens to. But there's lots of times where people feel like they're beset by negative entities. It's their own fear. Or it's somebody that's in a body who is trying to send a little negative energy their way, as opposed to sending positive energy their way. It could be either one. But fear will create, fear and anxiety can create all kinds of physical sensations, all kinds of issues, all kinds of things that you hear, voices, uh, you know, pain in your back or in your leg or in your foot. It can create lots and lots of physical issues. That's your own fear can do that. And as you interpret it in time in terms of another being attacking you, well, you can feel whatever whatever would be appropriate to feel for that attack. The mind leads, the body follows. So if in your mind you interpret your fears in terms of somebody hitting you with a stick, then you may actually feel that you're being hit with a stick. It may even raise welts where it hits you. You may have red spots from where that stick hits you. But all of this is likely to be your own fear and your own interpretation. Though it is possible out in the margins that it's outside of you. If it's outside of you, then it's most likely that it's some other person that has a pretty negative attitude towards you, just sending you bad stuff and you're getting that negative energy and internalizing it in some way that makes you unhappy or makes or hurts or brings welts on your body or something. And then lastly, the the least likely thing is there actually is some non-physical entity giving you a hard time. That is a possibility, but it's pretty remote. It doesn't happen that often. It's probably just a, you know, less than 5% of the Complaints actually have to do with non-physical entities that are giving you a hard time. Most of the rest falls in those other two categories. So it's not impossible. Almost anything's possible in a virtual reality, but it's not something to worry about. Now, what can you do about it? For all of these, what you can do about it is if you don't have any fear, if you don't have a connection to this external being, that is causing you trouble, whether they're in or out of a body, whether they're in or out of this virtual reality, if there's no fear there, then they cannot connect to you. Only if you are engaged in some way with them, only if that person that really dislikes you is somebody you really dislike. You see, now through that mutual dislike, there's a conduit in which they can interact with you. 
if you don't have that dislike and you don't have fear in that situation, then you're pretty much invulnerable. So fear is the problem. Same with the, the, the disembodied being isn't going to influence you or cause you problem if there's no fear. If you have this fear of, oh, some disembodied being is going to get me, you know, the ghouls that while they're out at night on Halloween, you know, they're going to get me, then you're likely to have in, to interpret things of those things getting you. And you'll feel that way, which will make you more afraid. And as you get more and more afraid of it, it's more likely to happen. And it's easier for any entity to actually, you know, modify or do things to you that are, that are negative. That's why in all of these uh, voodoo kind of practices where somebody goes to hurt somebody, the very first thing they do is try to frighten them. That's what the little doll's for, right? That's what the, you know, the little doll with the pins in it. There's nothing magic about the little doll other than it's supposed to scare you. And once you're frightened, now there's the doorway. You've just created a big door by which they can, you know, move their intent energy towards you so if you have no fear then you don't have a problem you're in you're pretty much invulnerable if you do have a fear that fear creates your vulnerability but it's a very small vulnerability now when it's you yourself and it's your own fear that's creating the problem then obviously there is a doorway there by that fear can, can interfere with you because it's inside of you to begin with. That's the worst one. Fear is, is the problem. And if you're a fearless person and a person of love and caring, there probably isn't anybody that dislikes you. Most everybody likes you because you're really a very likable person. So you don't have that problem either. Fear is the biggest problem here as far as the being gotten from elsewhere, whether it's yourself or someplace else. Fear is the doorway through which all of this takes place. That's why step one is always get rid of your fear. <laughs>